This morning, I invite you to open your Bible. I hope you brought your copy of God's Word today, and I encourage you to open your Bible to Acts chapter number 17. How many of y'all believe that God has a word for us today? Would you raise your hand? All right, I'll be praying for the rest of you. And God has a word for us. He does. Today, if you come with an attitude thinking that there's no word for me, then probably you won't hear a word. But if you come today saying, I know that God has a word for me, speak, Lord, your servant is listening. God will speak to your heart, warm your heart, and give you, give you a heart that's filled with joy and hope and conviction and transformation. In the 17th chapter, beginning with verse number one, now when they had passed through Amphipolis, 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 that's it, all right, Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as it was his custom, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who've turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them, and they're all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying there's another king, Jesus. The people in the city authorities were disturbed when all these, they heard these things, and when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now those, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. And they received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if they were so. And many of them therefore believed with not a few Greek women of high standing, as well as men. But when the Jews of Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. And then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea. But Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens. And after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would bless the reading of your word. And Father, as we unpack this today and look at it together, I ask you to speak to us. 
Holy Spirit of God, we ask today that you do business in our hearts and in our lives. We invite you to speak to us, to convict us, to convince us, and to transform us. In Jesus' name, amen. Today, we, as we look at this text, I'm thinking about gospel expectations. And what did, what, what did these missionaries expect as they were faithfully serving the Lord from one city to another in Europe and Asia? And today, I want us to think about that together. You know what? Today is a super day to be in church. Amen? I mean, it is a super day to love the Lord. It's a super day to worship the Lord. In case you haven't heard, there's a football game today. It's called the Super Bowl. I heard the commissioner of the NFL saying that he fully expected that the Super Bowl would generate $1 billion of income for the NFL. Can you imagine? How many people watch the Super Bowl today? It's estimated 100 million people will watch the Super Bowl today. How many of y'all believe today that Kansas City is going to win this game? All right, a few of you. How many of you think San Francisco's going to win this game? How many of you don't really care who's going to win this game? Well, that's a bunch of you. Now, I can tell you who won't win this game. Dallas will not win this game today. The Rams won't win this game today. <laughs> and the Patriots aren't going to win this year. <laughs> but they win all the time. They take a year off. Now, today is a fun day for football fans that like to watch that. For the rest of you, you get to watch a rerun movie or something else that's a, or enjoy a warm February morning. It's amazing. A 30-second commercial. You know how much it costs this year at the Super Bowl? $5.6 million for a 30-second commercial. You will not find the church advertised during the Super Bowl on TV. As a matter of fact, it's estimated by CBS Market Watch that the average resale ticket of a Super Bowl ticket late, this late in the game is $10,800. I won't be attending the Super Bowl either. $17.2 billion will be spent on Super Bowl parties. The average household is going to spend $88 on Super Bowl snacks and party items today. Not me. Let me say this. Way more important than a football game is God's presence right here meeting with us today. This is the day the Lord has made, and I will rejoice and be glad in it. Today is a day to listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit who is still speaking today to us. 
Today is a day to encourage and stimulate one another to love and good day, deeds. Today is a day to hear God's word together. And today is the day that the Lord's made. We will be glad and we will rejoice in it. The early church was marked with expectancy and joy. And I want us to look into the text today. First of all, we notice in chapter 17, verse 1, that Paul and Silas and Timothy are leaving now Philippi, and perhaps Dr. Luke is with them. They, they leave from Philippi, and they're hitting, going near, from near the coast, and they're going more inward and westward, and they're headed toward Thessalonica. Now, Thessalonica is the goal. That's a major city, 200,000 people. It's the capital city. They're traveling along a Roman highway called the Ignatian Way, and they're headed toward the capital city of Macedonia, Thessalonica. It's a hundred-mile journey by foot. And so on the way, uh, the Scripture tells us, Dr. Luke, that he is passing through Amphipolis and Apollonia. And so these are two smaller cities along the way, and they're they're where they would spend the night. So they stopped and they spend the night at uh, Amphipolis. And then uh, it's another full day's journey to make their way to Apollonia. But their strategy is to go to a city. And the city is the most influential city. And that is Thessalonica. In modern missions, often there's been a movement over the last uh, really many decades that a lot of the emphasis in missions has been in rural areas, and churches seem to me more affectionate to go out into the bush to people that are unknown or a language that's unknown or an unreached people group where there's a small little group of people. And we'd like to go to more agrarian people and rural bush people and people that are uh, far away from cities. But Paul's focus and Paul's strategy was to go to the cities because in the city were the seats of commerce. In the city was the seat of higher education and learning and government and religious centers. And in the city, if you could see a foothold in the city, that it could be so transformational that it could change the world. This was the strategy. The strategy was also to go to the Jews first. So notice Paul. He goes, there was a synagogue there of the Jews, chapter 17, verse 1. And according to Paul's custom, he went to them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures. Now notice there, he reasoned with them. The word reasoned means he's dialoguing with them. He's discussing the Bible with them for the purpose of helping them understand who Jesus is. So as he's talking about the Bible, I'm sure Paul discusses with them in the synagogue things like this. The purpose of the law. The reason for God's election. The reason of God's choosing of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. About God's protection in Egypt. About God's covenant with Abraham and the meaning of that covenant for all of us. I think he talked to them in the synagogue about the promises to Israel and about God's redemption out of Egypt. And it's a picture of God's redemption for all of us. 
about the promise that God gave, that he would give us a king and a Messiah that would rule and reign over us and change us. That uh, they, I'm sure he taught about the meaning of the sacrifices and the sacrificial system and how the blood atonement of those animals was pointing to a greater sacrifice and a blood atonement. So he is dialoguing with them. But then Luke tells us, he uses another word, verse number three, explaining. And if you look at your Bible, it says it's the word explaining and then giving evidence. So he's explaining to them what this means. To explain it, he means to open it up, to open up understanding, to teach in a way that there's a clarity about the promises of God and how they've been fulfilled. It's, it's something that's explained to you. And Paul is a master teacher and preacher. And the, surely all of the Jewish people that were in that synagogue in Thessalonica recognized that he was a trained rabbi with great understanding of the Scripture. And so he's opening up the Scriptures and explaining it to them. Folks, I think it's important for every believer to have a grasp on God's word so that you can explain it in easy language for people to understand. Not make it complicated or difficult. And so he was explaining. Folks, there's lots of things I don't know how to do in this world. Thank God for YouTube videos. I wasn't born in a family where they taught me lots of certain kinds of home skills. So when I want to figure out, Christy would say, just to change a light bulb, I have to watch a YouTube video. Or to fix a leak, or to repair a lawnmower, or whatever the issue is, there's a, somebody in this world has made a YouTube video about it. It's unbelievable. Now, the problem with me is I still don't stop with one video. I go to the next thing, the next thing. I, I would be looking for a video on how to fix my lawnmower, and all of a sudden, I'm watching a video about how to shoe a horse. I don't know how that happens, <laughs> but it just does. But more important than that, Paul was taking the great truths of God's redemptive work and explaining it in the synagogue, to understand the great gospel found in Jesus Christ. The next word that we find here is these missionaries in their strategy was they were proving or giving evidence that Jesus is Messiah. Notice, look at the scripture, verse number three, and proving or giving evidence that Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead saying, this Jesus whom I'm proclaiming to you is the Christ. So the, 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 the preaching, the persuading, the, the, the dialoguing, the explaining, and then he's ultimately moving toward proving this Jesus is the fulfillment of what was promised in Scripture. There was a man from Galilee, and Paul, can you hear him? And his name is Jesus. He's a Jewish man. And he was born of a virgin. And he, this man, was unlike any other man. And he lived a life unlike any other life. 
and he never ever sinned and he completely fulfilled the law of God. And he did signs that only God could do. He made the lame to walk, the blind to see. He was unbelievable in his signs, but his words that he taught had life in them. He understood the law and explained it to us in ways that we never could understand it. He is the scripture fulfilled. But not only that, he must suffer. My friends, it was absolutely necessary that Jesus Christ suffer and die for our sins. That must be the heart of our gospel preaching. Amen? You take the cross out of the teaching in the church, and that church will die. This is, I ask you to open your Bible. It's not on the screen. And the guys running the screens think, when are we going to get to the points? I'll tell you. It's toward the end. Open your Bible to the book of Isaiah, chapter number 53. I can just imagine Paul opening up the text to Isaiah and said, let's talk about this. Concerning this Jesus and God's servant, look with me. He says, he had no stately form, verse 2, that we should look upon him, no appearance you should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men. Who is this servant? And he's pointing to Jesus. He's, a, he's despised and forsaken of men. Verse 3, he's a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He's not esteemed. We esteemed him not. Verse number 4, our griefs he bore. He bore our sorrows. He bore our griefs. He bore our shame. And he carried them. And we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God. When they looked, Isaiah prophesied that this servant, when they looked on him, they saw that there was nothing beautiful in him the way that he died. He was pierced for our transgressions, meaning he was experiencing this pain because in this suffering and this agony and this humiliation because of our sins. He wasn't suffering because of his sins. We misunderstood this servant. We thought there was something wrong with him. The truth of the matter is there was something wrong with us, and he was dying for us on the cross. This is what he's preaching, and he's proving in verse number four, he bore our sorrows. He's smitten for us. Verse five, pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. That means all of my sin, all of my transgressions, my rebellion. Anybody here have rebellious spirit in your heart? We all do. And this rebellion that is in me that lays at the root of this sin, my rebellion he paid for on the cross. My twistedness, my iniquities, the sin that leaves me disturbed deep inside, Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. He died for me. The greatest news in all the world. He was crushed for me. This is what Paul is proving. 
And then he says, this Jesus from Nazareth, the one I'm talking to you about, this Galilean that preached and taught and did miracles and, and we never saw sin in him. When we looked at him, we saw the glory of God. This Jesus suffered at the hands of Jews and Romans. He was convicted to death even though he did no wrong. He died like a criminal, but before his accusers, he kept silent like a lamb before its shearers. And this same Jesus I'm talking about was not esteemed. This same Jesus was pierced for our sins. And this same Jesus was hung on a Roman cross. And you know, cursed is everyone that's hung on a tree. But he bore the curse for us so that we might die, live and not die. He suffered for us. He bore the iniquity of us all. He was the suffering substitute for our sin. He's a lamb without spot or blemish. And he is the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. This is that. This is what the scripture says concerning Messiah, the suffering servant. And that man is Jesus Christ. This is what he's preaching. He died our death so we might have his life. And he was buried. He was appointed with the wicked, verse number 9 of Isaiah. His grave was assigned with wicked men. He was with a rich man in his death. He had done no violence. There was no deceit in his mouth. It says in verse number 12 that he interceded for transgressors. Even on the cross, he cries out and prays, Father, forgive him. They don't even know what they're doing. But sin, this is what Paul's saying. Sin could never be atoned for, Jewish believer. Sin could never be atoned for by sinners' offerings. Sin cannot be atoned for by an animal sacrifice. Sin must be atoned for by a perfect sacrifice of a perfect man before a holy God. And that's Jesus Christ alone. He is the suffering servant. He is the Messiah, the King that God had promised, but he came to die for us. And David even said such. In Psalm chapter 16, it's not just enough that Jesus suffered and not just enough that Jesus died and was buried, but at the core of the gospel is this truth. He rose again. And there's no other one like that. He's the only one. Psalm 16.10 says, For thou will not abandon my soul to Sheol, neither will thou allow thy Holy One to undergo decay. Jesus is Messiah because Jesus did what no other man had ever done. He died our death and literally died, but he rose again victoriously. He said, listen, nobody takes my life. I lay it down willingly. If I lay it down, I have authority to take it back up again. He rose again. And we are witnesses of that. And he has proved for all time he is Messiah. It's proof that he's the Lord of life and death and heaven and hell. And he alone can save. And he is our king. This prophesied in Scripture is that fulfilled in Jesus Christ. It was the core of his preaching. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 says, the core of preaching, Paul says, you know the gospel, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried and rose again the third day 
according to the Scripture. It was the heart of the preaching of the gospel. And so he's preaching to these folks in the synagogue that Jesus is Messiah. This is King Jesus. And what happens? Notice back to our text in chapter 17 and verse 4. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas along with a great multitude of God-fearing Greeks and a number of leading women. So people are turning to Christ and believing God. Many God-fearing Greeks, we have some of those names listed in other places in Scripture. Uh, uh, Secundus and Aristarchus, also who became followers of Paul and joined him on the missionary journey. They are from Thessalonica. But then there's the jealousy of the Jews. And they become riled up, and they get a mob riled up in the city. Dr. Luke calls them rabble. They're folks of low-minded people. They bring a very serious accusation and a mob crowd mentality. They want to get rid of these men. They want to drag Paul and Silas before the authorities. And so they know that he'd been staying at Jason's house, and they go to Jason and drag him out. They're threatening and accusing and saying they're turning this whole world upside down with this message and they've caused trouble in other cities and they're teaching us to disobey Caesar and give allegiance to a new king called Jesus. It was a serious accusation. And Paul and Silas were not at Jason's home at the time and so they drag him out and Jason puts up a surety bond. And in the end, they sort of settle down and he puts up a bunch of money and says, the agreement is Paul will leave city. And they send Paul away. Now they send him away at night, and Paul goes 55 miles or so further to the west, a little bit or more off the beaten path to a place called Berea. And Paul and Silas get there. It's dangerous to travel at night, and yet they were sent at night to, from Berea, from Thessalonica, because it was more dangerous to stay at Thessalonica. And so they come, as is Paul's custom again, to the synagogue of the Jews. This is found in verse number 10. And he sent Paul and Silas by night to Berea. They arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. Now, verse number 11, I think this is very interesting. Now, these were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica. (laughs) Underline that if you want to. Noble-minded. The word there for noble is eugenes. The word eu is, means well, and genes means born. They were well-born. They were higher thinking. They were open-minded. They were fair-minded. They were thoughtful. There was a little more refinement to these folks in Berea. As a matter of fact, the word Eugene comes from that word noble. If if you've ever given the name Eugene, it means you're noble-minded. Or if it's shortened to Gene, noble-minded. He says not, I think it's very interesting. Paul writes to the Corinthians, he says, not many of you are Eugenes. Noble-minded or wise. But instead, these Paul, Luke, Dr. Luke and Paul call noble-minded and Silas. 
And notice that not only that, they were more open to listening. How did they receive and respond to the word of God? They received, verse number 12, the word with great eagerness. That means they welcomed the word. The word eagerness means to run to the gate. It's like when a messenger comes to the gates of the city and there's a good message from the messenger. This is before the internet, folks, all right? Before text messaging, before satellite news. So good news came from messengers, and when a messenger comes bearing good news, people run to the city gate to hear it. And there was an eagerness on the part of these in Berea to hear what God had to say to them, to receive the word of God with eagerness. Let me ask you a question. Do you want to receive the word of God with eagerness in your life? If I were to ask you to evaluate your own personal time with the Lord in prayer and in the Word, how much time in your day do you spend in God's Word? Are you eager to hear what He would say to you? Are you eager thinking? Today, when you got up this morning, did you think about the eagerness you had in your heart to hear from God today, to listen to Him today, the Word that He has? Were you thinking this morning, what can I learn from God today? How can I live more closely with Jesus today? How can I worship the Lord today? Was there this burden in your heart? Man, if God wants to meet with us, this is the day the Lord's made, and I get to meet with Him today. I leave my Bible open like this on the kitchen table or the kitchen counter or my study. And the first thing I do when I get up in the morning is I want to commune with him. And I ask him to speak to me from his word. I I can't wait to get there to see what he has to say to me. This isn't something I do occasionally. This is something I do unless there's some exception every day in my life. And I'm not saying that to brag because there was a time that was not true. I'm saying this word's life. It's life. And the God of this universe wants to speak into your life. And it's not your feelings. You can have bad feelings when you get up in the morning. Eat some Taco Bell and go to bed, but see what you feel like in the morning. You can eat a Crave case and you'll have a problem. The Word of God is not about your feelings. It's truth. And the Spirit of God speaks to the Word of God into my heart and yours. And that's what these... Men, they loved the word. They not only loved it, they examined it. Whatever Paul and Silas were preaching, then they, they were comparing that to the Scripture, examining and testing. Is this true? Is this right? And Paul welcomes that test, welcomes that, because the Scriptures that Jesus said point to me, to me. You read Moses? 
Good. Moses speaks to me. The Bible's all about Jesus, my friends. You study it close, you just see Jesus everywhere in there. Isn't that good? Wow. We may not get to the points today. And many believed. That's the power of God's word. Notice as they're, they're examining the scriptures, and many therefore believed, verse 12, along with a number of prominent Greek women. I love this. In both Thessalonica and also in Berea, Dr. Luke Paul makes it very clear. A large number of women were responsive to the gospel. And it was transformational in the society and in the homes and in the families. I'm telling you, God is at work. In the early church and today, women are at the heart of reception of the gospel and telling of the gospel. Telling the good news. The good news was first given on Resurrection Sunday to women. And they are powerful proclaimers of the truth. Hmm. Women not only given the first of the gospel, prominent Greek women in that city became strong believers, and some men became strong believers, and agitators came from Thessalonica. They walked 55 miles to stir up trouble against Paul and Silas. That's the enemy. That's the hatred for Christ and the gospel of grace that they'll turn against you. Now, what are some of the expectations that we might want to see? Let's hurry, hurry, hurry. We're going to walk through this real quick. Number one, this is what you ought to expect. You ought to expect to see the power of God when you go on mission sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen? See his power. God's power is evident in Thessalonica. God's power evident in Berea. Now, look with me. One of the early books written by Paul, written back to this church at Thessalonica in 1 Thessalonians. So you have your Bible. Look what Paul had to say to them. 1 Thessalonians, in chapter number 1, beginning with verse number 2. He says, we give thanks for you all, making mention you of in our prayers. And then he says, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith, labor of love, steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of God our Father, knowing, brethren, beloved of God, his choice of you. God's the one that chose you. And that verse number five, for our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power in the Holy Spirit with full conviction, as you know what kind of men we prove to be for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. And you became an example, an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. He said God so powerfully changed you, worked in you, that your whole lives have become a testimony through all of Greece. Isn't that amazing? God was at work. It was the power of God. Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. In chapter 2 of 1 Thessalonians, verse number 13, 
Listen to what he says. And for this reason, we constantly thank God that when you received from us God's message, the gospel, you accepted it not as the word of men, but what it really is, the word of God, which performs its work in you who believe. The powerful, life-changing, life-saving work of the word of God. How many of y'all would like to see God's power in your life? I'm looking. Amen. Some of you are not sure. You want to see God's power. To see his power, you must proclaim his gospel. Folks, there's no power in proclaiming politics. There's no power in proclaiming sports. There's no power in proclaiming opinions. There's no power in proclaiming religion. But there's power when you proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. It changes lives. So my question to you is, when is the last time you shared the gospel with someone? When is the, ch- when is the last time you shared the gospel with someone? Who was it? Do you remember? I do. It was this week man by the name of Francisco, he said, "Uh, please don't call me Francisco, Frankie. Okay, Frankie. I started sharing the gospel with him. He interrupted me. And he said, I am a believer in Jesus Christ. We had fellowship after that. You could sense it. When's the last time you shared the gospel? Here's my challenge to you. Here's your assignment if you choose to accept it. And this is a mission that is possible. Number one, would you share the gospel with somebody this week? The only caveat, I ask that they be alive and human. Would you share the gospel with someone this week? If you can't find somebody, share the gospel with your wife or your husband. And just said, would you help me with my homework assignment, please? Would you share the gospel with your children or a child? If not, why not? Would you share the gospel with a neighbor? Would you share the gospel with a coworker? Would you share the gospel with a fellow student in my high school or middle school? Just simply tell him, listen, can you help me? My pastor gave me an assignment, and I agreed to do this, and then share the gospel with them. And if they agree, just watch how God works. His gospel is powerful to change lives. And then I'd love for you to come and tell me what happened. I can't wait to hear it. Amen? Second thing you should expect. Expect to experience rejection. If you think if I share the gospel, then everybody's going to like me, you're not thinking right. 
Jesus said that he would bring division. Truth of the matter is, the gospel is a stumbling block or a stepping stone. The gospel brings division because men's hearts are wicked and we're sinful and we don't want to repent. Listen, listen closely. If your mission is to want everybody to like you, number one, you're delusional. Because they won't. You'll never be evangelistic if that's your mission in life. Secondly, if your mission, if your fear is the fear of rejection, life's all about you, and you're afraid about my feelings getting hurt or me being rejected, then you need to get over yourself and realize God has you on this earth for a reason and a purpose. And that's to tell others about his gospel. The gospel's only hope, amen? Listen, Jesus said in Matthew 10, he who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Jesus said, he who loves a son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Jesus said, he who does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Hmm. Number three, expect suffering and persecution. You say, Brother Tim, you're really making this sound fun. Expect suffering and persecution. Listen close. 1 Thessalonians chapter number 1, verse 6. Look with me. Listen to what Paul said. 1 Thessalonians and chapter 1. You became imitators of us in the Lord, having received the Lord in much tribulation and with the joy of the Holy Spirit. You received God's word in tribulation and difficulty and hardship. Jesus said, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus said, blessed are you when men cast insults at you, persecute you, say all manner of evil about you falsely because of me. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad because great is your reward in heaven. So they, so they persecuted the prophets before you. It's, he says, you're not greater than your master. If your master suffers, don't you think you might suffer? 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, Paul said, all who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 16, 9, there's an open door for effective work, but there are many adversaries. But he saw the open door more than the adversaries. Persecution and suffering. Listen, persecution in America is not that somebody defriended you off Facebook. That is not persecution. You've not suffered to the point of shedding of blood. Paul knew suffering. Paul knew the fellowship with Jesus that it brings. My friends, some will reject and you might experience some people that are unkind to you or mean to you. But it's not about you. It's about Jesus. It's about Jesus. I'd rather somebody get mad at me and then repent and get saved and go to heaven than go to hell. Number four, expect the presence of the Holy Spirit. 
Listen, when you're on mission and you're telling the good news of Jesus Christ, expect the Holy Spirit's presence. John said, John's gospel, Jesus said, when he, the Holy Spirit, the helper, the parakletos, comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness of me, and you will bear witness also. When the Spirit of God, when the Spirit has come upon you, you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost part of the earth. Let me, listen, my friends, when you're about the Father's business, His presence is right there with you in power. Amen? When you're serving Him, He's with you. Listen, nothing can separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Who can separate us from the love of God? Shall tribulation, Paul asked? No. Shall distress? No. Shall persecution? No. Shall famine? No. Shall peril? I mean, my life's threatened. No. Shall the sword, guns and knives? No. In all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that nothing in life, nothing in death, nothing in heaven, nothing in hell, nothing in all of creation shall ever be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The Holy Spirit intercedes for us. Jesus said, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. I'll never abandon you. I'm with you. And they were stoning old Stephen. He looked up into heaven and he saw Jesus standing at the right hand. Why was he standing? The Bible says he was seated, but now he's standing because one of his own is laying down his life. And he's welcoming him right into glory. Man, his presence is never greater when you're faithful at doing what God calls you to do. That should be your expectation. Somebody said, do you feel the Holy Spirit? I absolutely, I feel the Holy Spirit. But more than I feel him, I know his word to be true. And he is in me. And he's guiding me. And he's comforting me me and he is strengthening me and he's given a weak coward a bold voice in a lost world because he's with me and he's with you amen i'm done expect god's abundant provision he will abundantly provide paul said in second corinthians 12 9 my grace is sufficient for you my power is perfected in weakness. He said, most gladly, I'd rather boast of my weaknesses that the power of Christ might dwell in me. Therefore, I'm content with weaknesses, insults, distress, persecution, difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. In the midst of this that he has called us to. He gives you abundant grace. But you won't know grace if you will not obey him and live for him. Know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. And it will be glory. Glory for all of us. Amen. And Father in heaven, oh, your word is so 
powerful and so rich. May we be expectant people like these early missionaries. In Jesus' name, amen.